The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast novel series written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jagan. Presenting Season 9, Avalanche. All Along the Watchtower. Written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jagger. There were giants in the ocean. Two of them. In deference to mere human sensibilities, both Amphitrite and Atlas wore short, sarong-like drapes of fabric around their hips. Amphitrite, however, had not continued that sensitivity by wearing any sort of top. Bella wondered how many of the male metas loading up onto the sea-colored platforms were going to be permanently traumatized by the sight. Boobs are great, unless they're boobs the size of a house on a gorgeous female who regards you with about the same deference as you give a fruit fly. This was going to be her last chance to talk with Red Savior, before the infill team climbed into the submarine Atlas was going to be carrying like a football. Looking around anxiously, Bella spotted Natalia supervising the loading and talking with Murdoch. Sarah was already in the sub. She'd gone ahead because maneuvering her wings down the hatch had been something of a challenge and had required the assistance of one person below her and one above. Let's go have a word, she muttered to Vicky, who was dressed, oddly enough, in chainmail with a sword and long dagger. What she expected to accomplish with that, Bella hadn't a clue but if the get-up made the little magician feel better. Vicky shrugged and followed her as she eeled her way through the crowd of waiting metas. Savior, Bella called. Can I borrow you a second? She pointed over to a beach cabana that would give them some semblance of privacy. Natalia and Murdoch were both already suited up for combat, Nat in the CCCP uniform, John in his stealth nano-weave get-up, Bella wondered why he bothered to carry the rifle, pistol, and various explosives with what he could do just with his powers. The pair looked up at Bella, and Nat motioned for Murdoch to follow her. That took Bella aback a bit. Then again, she had Vicky with her. Maybe Savior wanted J.M. to even the odds in what was probably going to be a very awkward conversation. Duh? Just going over final preparations and equipment checks. The commissar took a cigarette. She'd started on a fresh pack, and probably not her first of the day, and held it out. J.M. rolled his eyes and lit the tobacco with a flame from his thumb. Ah, she enjoys using a human cigarette lighter. That could flatten this entire beach if he wanted to. Then again, maybe using J.M. as her personal torch was her way of keeping a lid on her very rational fear of the firebomb, or maybe it was her way of doing a continual system check, as long as he reacted to being ordered to light a cigarette with an eye roll and not a light-it-yourself, puny mortal. Things were still under control. Let's get out of the sun, Bella said, leading the way to the cabana. The sand was loose, and walking through it was a pain. Somehow, Vicky was walking on the stuff as if it was hard-packed. Earth magic? Probably. Bella wasn't sensitive to magic, of course, but Vicky was so powered up, even Bella could feel something from her, like a subsonic hum. It stood to reason there could be bleed-over that would make shifting sand solid under the mage's feet without her even thinking about it. I'm not sure who I'm more scared of right now, J.M. 
or Vix. When they got into the shelter of the cabana and out of the sun, Savior gave a little grunt of approval at the relative cool. Even after years of living in Georgia, Red Savior still was not used to the heat, and here on a Florida beach it was even worse than in the middle of Atlanta. Natalia took a drag on the cigarette, waving her hand. What do you need? Is there being new intel, or is one of big tough generals lost his aid and must have nap? Something we need to be clear on, Bella said firmly. You are the one who's going to be in charge of the real assault force once that shield goes down. And if, when, we start winning, we can't have a wholesale slaughter. A lot of these people have payback on their minds. Including you, Red Savior. The commissar stood there, letting the cigarette burn without drawing from it, and stared at Bella, taking measure of her. Definitely not Natalia or Sestra right now. She's in commissar mode. You surprise me, blue girl. Bella weighed her words carefully. A wholesale slaughter, violating the rules of war. That's going to do irreparable damage. You surprise me, as I said. I thought you finally had the stomach to do what needed to be done. She finally took a drag on the cigarette. This is your first war, so maybe I should not be so surprised. But still, you are a leader now, and you cannot be having naive delusions. This is not conflict that ends with treaties, resolutions, and overstuffed suits talking in front of cameras. These are invaders, conquerors who want to genocide entire planet after they enslave it. You do not deal with enemies like these. Appeasement is a step toward surrender. She took another drag, then stabbed the cigarette in the air at Bella. The fools who run this world will surrender, turn bellies and throats to sky and ask to be eaten last. If we are not winning here, in totally, with no chance for being reprisals. Slaughter? Red Square was slaughter. Civilians gunned down without mercy was slaughter. This is destroying an enemy before they can destroy us. It's simple, yet. Murdoch stood not quite at her side, arms crossed over his chest. She couldn't read him, but she could see that he was scanning everyone with his telepathy. And it will do as much or more damage to us as it will to them, she replied flatly. Genocide begets genocide, and what's there to stop it if we start it here? No. Rules of war. If they don't surrender, fine, then bring the thunder. But if they do, they're to be treated like any other captives of war. She expected to hear her words echoed or reinforced by Vicky. But instead, silence. Vicky looked as if her mind was anywhere but here, but not in a passive way. No, she was tightly focused on something else, though what that was Bella could not guess. But whatever it was, she didn't agree enough with Bella to break that concentration. You Americanski have learned nothing from past wars. Half measures are leading to more death, more suffering, and more war. These Thulians will not forget their defeats. Are you to integrate aliens with clear fascista ideology and culture into society? She spat on the sand, shaking her head. 
if you were being more like your forebears, we would not be having conversation. In great patriotic war, after your country allowed Russia to bleed the Nazis at great cost, only then you entered war. But entered it you did, totally. Dresden, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, was quarter given to any there? Would it have been given if there were still threats? Total war is total. Genocide begets genocide. <laughs> Hard for enemy to retaliate if there is no enemy. Bella shook her head. That wasn't what I meant. I meant once we allow ourselves to commit genocide, it won't stop with aliens. Because humans can always turn the enemy into an alien worthy of genocide. In desperation, since Vicky wasn't saying anything, Bella looked at J.M. He'd sided with her once before, when Savior was about to plunge neck deep into torture. Would he side with her again? Nat caught her look, then turned to John. Murdoch, you are soldier at heart. You are knowing hard truths of fighting war. What do you have to say? John shrugged, and Bella's heart sank. This is right down to the wire. <laughs> no shit, Murdoch, right? We've all been there before, but I've seen it more in my fair share over the years. You learn a hell of a lot about someone when you see what they do when everything is on the line. He paused, looking off into the distance for a moment before meeting Bella's eyes. A lot of folks choke. Pressure is too much. They didn't train hard enough or they take on a fight that they can't finish. Now he turned to look at Nat. Others ditch their principles when the going gets tough. They cut corners, look the other way, value expediency over what they know they ought to do. He's killed more people than anyone I know, but I don't think there's anyone I trust more, except Bull. So what's your call on this? Expediency or ethics? She asked directly. John waited longer than Bella would have liked before answering. I figure if y'all wanted everyone in the ship dead, you'd just send in me and Sarah, maybe the Giants, and call it a day. Or smuggle in some nukes. Since we're not doing that, we ain't killing everyone and everything in there. Which is probably a good idea, considering we might have some prisoners of war to rescue. The dragon definitely scooped up some folks, plus whoever the hell else might be kidnapped. This war has been going on for years, and we've got a lot of missing in action that might just be locked up in this tub. He shrugged again. So, my answer? Hit him hard. That's what we do. But I'd rather bring people back alive than kill everything in there. Bella nodded slowly. There you go, Commissar Red Savior. There's the hard truth you wanted. Bella felt a flash of anger from Natalia, even though she didn't react outwardly, except to puff on her cigarette. Just as quickly as it had bubbled up, Nat clamped down on the emotion. Duh, fine. If it will be satisfying for delicate sensibilities, we will go by the book, as you are saying. We'll not give order to deliver justice to Fascista. You can deliver all the justice you want, Commissar. Bella replied, her voice hard. Just make sure it's justice and not revenge. You know the old Chinese saying, I presume. If you walk the road to vengeance, be prepared to dig two graves. 
Natalia barked a harsh laugh. You are mistaken to think that justice and revenge are being mutually exclusive, Sestra. And you are foolish to think that any of us should go to this evil place without being ready to die. She flicked the cigarette away from the group and turned to leave. You will have your rules of war followed. I must go and find a way to make sure war is ended at the same time now, she called over her shoulder. Bella grimaced. I tried, she said to no one in particular, then looked at Murdoch. Come on, we've got a sub to catch. You know, in another life that would just be you asking if I wanted to catch some lunch. But you're right. Let's get a move on. We should look into the futures, Sarah said abruptly. She was crammed into what looked like the uncomfortably tiny space of someone's bunk, wings and all, because there had been no other place to put her where her wings weren't in the way. The couple was alone on the submarine for the moment, except for the skeleton crew needed to keep life support going. After the discussion with Bella, Natalia, and nominally Victrix, John had finished packing his gear and made a beeline for the vessel. If nothing else, he didn't want to leave Sarah cooped up by herself in the cramped sub. More than that, though, he didn't want to be alone. The comrades of the CCCP had done their best to make John feel like he was still just another Tolverich, and the same could be said of some of the Echo personnel that he was more familiar with. Even so, there were more than a few people who just stared at him, like they were examining a particularly dangerous animal without the benefit of a cage between them. He had become used to being seen as the most lethal person in the room, or at least one of them, a long time ago. This was different. He was apart from everyone now, in more ways than he had ever been before. For the umpteenth time, he longed for the days when he was anonymous, just another on-the-run metahuman. You are troubled, love, Sarah said, softly, when he didn't answer. How can I help you? John grinned lopsidedly, shaking his head. Just caught up in the little things, darling. Life used to be a lot simpler before aliens and Nazis decided to blow up the world. He shifted in his seat a bit, turning to face her. Anyways, you're right. We ought to try and do what we can with the futures. We're going into the meat grinder and a lot of people are dependent on us. Her deep blue eyes regarded him steadily from the shadows of the bunk. Yet you are uneasy. Are you in need of comfort or knowledge more? That's a fair question, love, he said, sighing. Can't get anything past a wife who can literally read your emotions. Guess I'm not done adjusting to how things have changed. For us, I mean. He regarded her, trying to clear his mind and take in everything about her. Her eyes, her hair, and even her wings— she was beautiful, but in such a more personal way than she had been when he had first met her. There was still a bit of the alien grandeur to her, the way she moved, the way that she looked at things and people. But that was replaced more and more each day with a sort of human ease. She was more comfortable in her body now, with the limitations, the pains, and the joys. They had never been closer than they were right then. They're all afraid of us. Even Bella, 
maybe especially her. He took another moment, gathering his thoughts. It's coming off of them all in waves. They think we're unpredictable, and that scares them. I just don't know how we square that when everything is all said and done. Are we going to be fighting just to be us from now on? She reached out to where he sat on the bunk opposite hers and put one hand on his wrist. We cannot change what we are, but we can change how they see us merely by being ourselves as much as we can. That will take time, and there is none to spare now. What is it you have always said? Fix the first problem you have in front of you, and don't worry about the ones behind it. That is what we must do, and you know what that problem is. You're right, he said, sighing. And what a hell of a problem we got in front of us. So, shall we, before the others get here? She nodded and closed her hand down around his wrist. This is not the ideal place, but needs must. Let us look to the futures and find the best, if we can. The couple had been through the process enough times that now it was as easy as breathing for John. None of the anxiety or trepidation. One moment they were both sitting in the submarine, facing each other with their eyes closed and their hands clasped. The next, they were in an endless stream of light, with countless tributaries spreading out as far as either of them could see. John focused on what he wanted to see, and Sarah joined her intention with his, a glimpse at the next few hours for themselves and the rest of the assault force. Immediately, John felt that something was different about this viewing. Instead of a narrowing of the different paths and directions that the light was flowing, they multiplied. The intensity of the light was nearly blinding, culminating in a bright horizon, almost like a wall that began when they entered the world ship. There were a few things that John and Sarah were able to glean from the vision. There would be much suffering inside of the world ship, Death, loss, sacrifice, anguish. And no matter what else happened, both of them had to be there. Any path that began with either or both of them not going to the world ship terminated abruptly. It was unlike anything that John had ever seen when trying to view the futures. Before the viewing could drain them too much, John signaled to Sarah that they needed to end the trance. As one, they came back to the real world in real time. Sarah blinked at him owlishly. There is no clear path, she said finally. Just one, darling. We've got to be on the world ship. But we already knew that. The sounds of feet on the metal ladder leading down from the hatch echoed through the sub. Most of the sounds went forward. One set of feet came aft, in their direction. Vicky, dressed oddly in chainmail and with a sword and dagger sheathed at her side, appeared in the doorway of the bunk room and regarded them both solemnly. Any word from Delphi? she asked, a little too casually. John glanced over at Sarah and realized that the barest flecks of gold were still in both of their eyes. Gear up for a rough day and keep your powder dry, 
he said, turning back to Vicky. No matter what, Sarah and I are going to see this through. Of all the things in the world that are a certainty, that you and Sarah are in this till the end is at the top of the list, she replied. Fair enough. He eyed her outfit, particularly the sword. Packing a little bit of an old-school kid, aren't you? Under most circumstances, you'd be right. She put one hand carefully on the hilt of the sword. But after that run-in you guys had with Baron, and knowing what I know about Doppelganger, I've been spending every spare minute I have to make sure tire iron and can opener are a bit more than they seem. She raised an eyebrow. They've both got magically created nano-edges. I don't care how tough Baron's armor is or how fast Doppelganger can heal— I don't think either of them can take being sliced to ribbons by something with an edge only one nanometer wide. She patted the hilt. The sheaths are special containment fields for them, so I can keep from slicing everything in sight up until I'm ready. The only fly in the oatmeal is that once they're drawn, the spell only lasts about twenty minutes, give or take. Best make it count then, comrade. He shrugged, glancing at Sarah. This is why I like guns, explosives, and celestial fire. Simple, to the point, and effective. Sarah raised an eyebrow. There is nothing much simpler than a blade that can cut the wind itself, my love. Tell that to the wielder, he said, nodding to Vicky. I'm guessing our little mage has training to use those bits. Only ever had training with knives myself, and it's not the easiest thing to master. Even with a sword made out of fire and our gifts to help, it's a hell of a thing to learn to use right. Still, I'm happy she's bringing her blades along. Every trick we can get, you know. Thanks. Yeah, training since I was six. I'm actually counting on the idea they'll look at me and laugh. I hope they're still laughing when their heads hit the floor. Her flat tone made that not so much a threat as a promise. John felt a twinge deep inside of himself. Her words sound awfully familiar, don't they, Murdoch? He reached out carefully, brushing her mind with his telepathy. He found one thought that was the focus of everything. Assuming no one else had beaten her to it, Vicky was going to find Doppelganger and kill her. But the reason was not what John would have expected. Revenge. Oh, revenge was part of it, certainly. But the main reason... It was clear as if it had been written for him. Even if the Thulians go down, if Doppelganger escapes, no one in Echo will ever be safe. She'd had a personal lesson in that. Her parents had left her uncle alive, and years later he had come back to kidnap, torture, and kill her. Doppelganger had been Belenage's ally and pupil, there was every reason to believe she had taken that lesson in along with everything else. John was going to ask her why she hadn't supported Bella during the little meeting with the commissar. Now he knew. She had other priorities, the all-consuming kind, and she was psyching herself up to do what needed to be done. He had seen it before, of course. His men before a mission, or elite athletes before a big game. Total focus. Still. He was concerned. Getting that invested takes a lot out of a person, especially if that's the only thing they expect to get done. As if she had read his mind, 
Vicky looked straight into his eyes. Johnny, the bottom line here is that if we don't win here, Zach Marlowe notwithstanding, it's the end. Not just humanity, not just the planet, it will go beyond this planet. Ask Sarah. She saw it. So we have to forget about ourselves and concentrate on ending this now. I know what's on the line here, Vic. Trust me on that, if nothing else. He stretched his arms over his head, trying to stay casual. She's on the ragged edge. I just don't buy the forget-about-ourselves bit. Don't get me wrong. If it comes to buying the farm so that the world can keep on spinning, I'm all in. But I'd also like to win and live in that world. So I figure we aim high. He leaned forward, matching her stare. So take care of yourself when we get on site. Otherwise, I'll sick Sarah, Bella, and the bull on you. In no particular order, mind. She shrugged. It is what it is, she said. I'll be up in the captain's cabin if you need me. Then she turned and went back the way she had come. She has a powerful will, my love. One of the most powerful I have ever seen in a mortal. She will not be moved. He turned to see Sarah gazing at him solemnly. She is even more stubborn than you, and I did not think that possible. To do what she does, she's got to have a strong will and be stubborn as all hell. He looked after the way Vicky had gone, frowning. I just hope it doesn't get her killed. This wasn't her first submarine, if it could be called that, considering all of the bells and whistles added to make it fit for the coming battle. But Mel felt the familiar twinge of panic rise as she eyed the metal baguette floating in the water. Experience and training chased it away as quickly as it came, and she let out a long, controlled breath. How long are we going to be in there? Penny reached for Mel's hand. Her thin fingers trembled, and she swallowed hard. All the way underwater, I mean? Mel glanced down at her charge. After all that the girl had been through, she hadn't considered that claustrophobia would be a problem. She adjusted her grip to hold Penny's sweaty hand in her comparatively cool palm and squeezed. Not all that long. Just think of it like an inside room where they don't get windows. If you close your eyes, you can imagine it just how big or how small you want. It ain't that, Penny corrected, clutching Mel's hand with both of hers. I can't swim. You can't... Oh. Oh, Mel realized, glancing at the blue-green water surrounding them. And you're worried about something happening to the sub? Because I ain't going to let you fall in while we're getting on or off. And even if you did, she said, patting the girl's shoulder, I'd haul you out so fast you wouldn't have time to get your undershirt wet. Penny's eyes only widened, her pupils so big they drowned out the dark brown irises. You'd be that fast? Yep. Me and Riley and the rest of our squad, we had to go through all kinds of training for rescue operations. Land, air, water, burning buildings, underwater cars even livestock stampedes. She winked. Sweetie, I will swim for both of us. 
promise. Her charge's lip wrinkled and her grip tightened. But that's if I fall in. A submarine's gotta go underwater and stay underwater, right? And if they go deep enough, something could make it pop and the water could come in and... Penny took in more rapid breaths, squeezing Mel's hand hard enough to make her wince. Penny pulled the girl to the side and used her free hand to grip her chin. She locked her eyes with Penny's and dropped her voice to a low, warm whisper. Cher, you and I will be in a submarine guided by two huge water gods and filled with echo folks who got all sorts of powers to keep everybody safe. One of my former commanding officers is here, and you know what he can do? Penny's head wiggled from left to right, yet she didn't break eye contact. Big old bulwark makes these big old bubbles around anything he wants to keep safe, and he does it as easy as you talk to folks on the other side. If anything happens on that sub, he's gonna bubble it up, and nobody will get a drop of water on him. She let go of Penny, who lessened her hold on her fingers, and glanced back at the others waiting to board the sub. Others had to manage their own fears, but few would fault a barely teenager for a moment of crisis before beginning an operation of this magnitude. The girl let out a shaky breath and bobbed her head. You think there's somebody else who don't know how to swim? So it ain't just me? It ain't just you, Mel reassured her. The idea that she might not be alone in her fear seemed to calm the little girl. She released Mel's cramped fingers and wiped her palms on her pint-sized version of Echo Nano Weave. Will it be a long trip? Once we start going, I mean. The details of the briefing were fresh in her mind, coordinates and estimates memorized with little effort. After we get settled, we can count on about four hours of travel time. Four? Yep. Plenty of time for a nap, or some ice cream if you're not feeling like a rest. On these longer rides out, the best thing to do is let your brain relax and not think about a whole bunch of anything. Their group started to move forward to board the sub. Atlas stood sentry not more than twenty feet away, with a huge piece of what must have been the fabric used for big sails wrapped decorously around his hips in a sort of loincloth arrangement. From her viewpoint, the draping left little to the imagination, and she hoped that for Penny's sake, the mechanisms holding up said loincloth would not fall. For herself, she wouldn't mind a slight wardrobe malfunction. Any morale boost would be a welcome one. He's awful big. Penny craned her neck to take in the sight of Atlas next to them. Like some kind of jolly blue giant. More water, less veggies. Mel agreed. They shuffled on with the group, the girl ahead of her in the line to climb down the ladder into the main compartment. One foot in front of the other, with the promise of ice cream somewhere before the battle. Vicky settled herself in with her laptop. Eight, how are you coming on the story compilation? Splendidly, Vicky. In fact, done except for what is about to occur. Well, if I'm not around to edit it afterwards, it probably won't matter if it's been edited or not. The captain had graciously given her the use of his cabin. Why, she wasn't sure. It wasn't as if anything he did or did not do would matter to the sardine can right now, and he could just relax back here and watch videos if he wanted. 
Overwatch, open Atlas. Hey, big guy, are we ready to pull out? The hatch just closed, and I'm taking charge now. You might hear my hands on the hull, but after that I doubt you'll even know you're moving. T is about to move out as well. Vicky hadn't been sure what to expect, but Atlas must have been very gentle as his big hands closed around the hull, and he tucked them under his arm. Just some slight scrapes and a little jolt. Now came the worst part of the trip, trying to find something to occupy her for four hours. Might as well go over the document. Reading it couldn't possibly hurt worse than living through it had. And if I do nothing, I'm just going to relive it anyway. Georgie stood at the edge of what amounted to the prow for one of the vessels that the main assault forces were using. Water had been lapping over the edge since they began their journey, and enough of it had collected on the deck to ensure that everyone's boots were soaked, if they didn't have the benefit of waterproofing. Truth be told, Georgie didn't mind. He was used to his feet being cold from snow, soaked in water, and worse. His healing factor took care of most of his ills, for what it could not insulate him from, his Russian constitution guarded against, or so he liked to think. Better than Stalingrad. But then again, almost anything is. He turned from the ocean to survey the transport float. It was crowded with strapped-down vehicles, strapped-down equipment, and most of all, people. Thousands of soldiers, hundreds of metahumans, checking gear, going over operations orders, joking and chatting, or sleeping, but all tethered to the flat float that would be their transportation to the Thulian ship. It was a scene he was familiar with, the calm chaos before a battle, where everyone did their best to seem unconcerned. It comforted Georgie to see how some things never changed. The weapons, while more efficient than ever, were essentially the same. The men that wielded them were similar. The training was better, and they knew more about how things worked, the theories behind war, than at any other time in history. But at the core, a soldier had a singular purpose, to take the fight to the enemy. Georgie's life, while not simple by any measure, suited him perfectly. A soldier in the Red Army during the Great Patriotic War, captured by the Nazis, and then experimented on and locked away in a frozen state in a forgotten bunker until the early 90s, he had stayed static while the world moved on without him. Still, he had adapted, and fell back to the one thing that gave him purpose. Service. Communism had given way to capitalism, the Second World War to the Cold War, and now to the war against the Thulians. The circumstances did not concern him so much as how he could best help his fellow man. Here, about to fight a vastly superior enemy with insurmountable odds stacked against him, he felt at home. No matter what happened, he knew he was doing what he had always been meant to do. He heard Pavel clomping up to him before he saw him. He crossed his arms in front of his chest, turning back to the ocean. Old bear. Comrade. Bear was clearly displeased by something. Is nowhere to warm my food, Georgie. I'm not being allowed to make fire, and is no microwave. He held up a single can of ravioli, grimacing at it. Is inhuman yet? 
It is inhuman to call that food, old bear. He sighed, finally facing the cyborg. Today is going to be a good day, I think. Bear cocked his head to the side, regarding his friend. You are an odd man, Georgie, and a lousy karaoke singer, but, duh, I think you are right. He took in a lungful, whatever qualified as lungs for Pavel at least, of ocean air, exhaling contentedly. I believe the commissar is about to address the assembled troops. We should be in attendance. The surface they were standing on lurched a little, more sea water sloshed over the leaning edge, and the breeze created by the fact they were moving increased to a wind. Georgie looked back at where the shore lay, but it was already out of sight below the horizon. He had been dubious about being towed by a giant woman, but it appeared she could make substantial speed. Even with all we know, there are still wonders out there. Angels, ocean goddesses, and more. What will we find yet when this war is over? Even as he thought that, a meta who Georgie recognized as Jamaican Blaze, without saying anything, took Pavel's open can from him, held it in her hands for a moment, and her hands ignited briefly. She put the now warm can back in Pavel's metal hands, and she continued moving to the section of the float where Red Savior was standing. She says, you are welcome, Savetsky Medved, the voice of eight said over the CCCP channel. Lynn, what a woman, Bear said under his breath, already readying a fork. I'm wondering if it is violation of protocol to date Echo Girls. Georgie ignored him, focusing his attention on the crowd. The rest of the CCCP was already there. Thea, small and pale, leaning up against a crate of ammunition. Soviet towered over many of the men, her hand resting on Chug's craggy head. He was busy stuffing a piece of a broken pallet in his mouth, chewing intently. Proletariat was there. Three of his copies were all working on a set of supernaut armor, occasionally glancing up at the makeshift stage. For Echo, Jamaican Blaze, leader of the pack, Corby, a number of Echo Euro, Echo South America, Echo Africa, Echo Pacific, and Echo Pan-Asia people Georgie did not recognize were already assembled. Generally, each nation's military forces congregated around their representative metahumans. The Russians were interspersed with the CCCP, the NATO forces with the Americans and the European Echometas, and so on. Like with like, even gathered here together, fighting for the same thing, we have our divisions. Before Georgie could muse about human tribal eccentricities, the Commissar took to the makeshift stage, basically a large crate that Chug hadn't eaten yet. She wasn't smoking, he noticed, though he had no doubt that there was a small hail of cigarette butts somewhere close by, possibly hidden by the crate. The commissar wore the standard CCCP uniform with a load-bearing vest strapped over it. Rifle magazines, grenades, and pouches weighted it down, but if the commissar noticed, she didn't seem to show it. Her long black hair was pulled back in a tight bun at the back of her head. Unlike many of the assembled troops, she had forgone any camouflage face paint. She took a moment before speaking, surveying the crowd. I am not being a great orator, she paused, 
putting her fists on her hips. I have never been a diplomat and have no stomach for politics or bureaucrats. I am a soldier, like all of you. From the echoing of his Overwatch implant, Georgie knew that Eight was rebroadcasting this speech on every comm set in the Expeditionary Force. We come from different countries, different cultures, different militaries. But none of that is mattering now. All that matters is that we are here to do what soldiers are meant to do. Fight and kill the enemy. The commissar raised an arm, pointing away from the coastline, in the direction they were being towed. The Svenja are there. They have killed too many of our people, and will kill the rest if we do not stop them, here and now. All of us have lost someone, maybe everyone that has ever mattered to us. If we are not stopping them here, it will be like none of us ever existed. She shook her head, then looked back to the troops. All of you are already dead. You should make peace with this and fight like dead men. It does not matter if a single one of us leaves this place so long as we win. Fight like the dead. Be ferocious in the face of the enemy and bleed them dry. Fight, and maybe the world we are fighting for will survive. We land in 30 minutes. Make yourself ready, Tovarich. Pavel immediately started clapping his metal hands together, producing a clattering racket. The rest of the troops had already started moving, every single person hustling to make final preparations. Natalia had left the stage, undoubtedly to finish checking to see that there were no changes to the plan. Finally, Pavel stopped clapping. Was good speech. Rousing, yet? It was direct, like our commissar. She did not lie or make naive proclamations. Time will tell if she was right. Pavel's brow furrowed. Što? Whether we're all already dead men. He punched Pavel in the shoulder. Come, let us gather the others. There will be fascista to kill soon. The too calm quiet of the corridors had a familiar air as Mel led Penny forward with the rest of the team assigned to the infill party. Like the others, Penny had listened to the strong words with a sober expression. At the conclusion of the speech, she had reached up and patted Mel's hand, then checked over her small pack of gear that both Mel and Ramona had insisted she take with her. Now the little hand gripped Mel's fingers tightly on their way to the conning tower, Others swarmed past them with faces careful masks of resolve or concealed terror. The more experienced ones knew enough to allow a little bit of fear to accompany them to the hatch. Fear would keep them alert and agile, and Mel noted more shadows of concern as their comrades filed past. Just ahead of them, Bull's familiar bulk overshadowed Bella's lithe blue form. Victrix was probably behind them. Penny tilted her head back to see Bull disappear through the hatch and made a small noise in her throat. Last one, Mel murmured to her charge. We gotta keep it quiet and together once we hit that hatch. Don't think, just follow me up and through. Got it? Penny bit her lip and nodded. 
someone behind them made a hole in the flow, and they slipped in the line, heading up the ladder and through the hatch. Overcast skies and a rush of saltwater spray surrounded the group standing on the hull. Mel squinted at a figure standing on an otherwise invisible platform, recognizing the Echo Nano-Weave but not the person wearing it. The lithe figure with shining black hair pulled into a sleek bun pointed two fingers at her, and then motioned to the opening. That's our cue. Mel tugged at Penny's arm gently, less to make her move, and more to alert her to what needed to be done next. Her charge set her jaw and reached for the outstretched Meta's hand. She swung her up and threw the door hanging in the air, then reached for Mel next. This woman's hand was cool against her palm, but Mel felt the slight tremble as she pulled her up and through the door. Fear was a necessity. Mel knew it more than most. Fear would help them see it through. You've been listening to The Secret World Chronicle, written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jagger. Narration and production by Veronica Jagger at VoicesByVeronica.com. Quality review and production assistance by Laura Nicole at ResonantMoon.com. Music by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. The Secret World Chronicle podcast novel series is released under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 4.0 license. For previous episodes, check out secretworldchronicle.com. The Secret World Chronicle is published by the fantastic people at Bayon Books. Find fellow SWC fans on the Facebook group at www.facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Secret World Chronicle. And as always, thank you for listening.